High Rock Space Radio. Roger, restart. Now I'm looking at the red. Three, two, one. It's now time for The Space Revolution with Rick Tomlinson. Hey there, spacers. Welcome back. This is The Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson. We're part of the IROC Space Radio community, and that is part of the iHeart Radio Network. Um, and for those of you seeing this on uh, YouTube, we are uh, doing one of our very first made-for-YouTube uh, productions here today. And uh, our, our guest is amazing, and uh, we'll get to her in just a moment. But um, uh, I do want to welcome you back, and please like and share and do all those youtube kind of things that you do um, so that we can grow um, the audience and uh, have more people become informed about the space revolution. As you know, um, who have listened before, I, I spent some time with some friends trying to poke around the idea of digging up asteroids in space and space resources. Uh, had a little company called Deep Space Industries. Uh, at the time, uh, we really thought that was going to happen. We were way too early. But in the meantime, it kind of uh, started a really interesting global conversation, especially with the nation of Luxembourg diving in with us on it, uh, kind of legitimized the idea of talking about the resources in space. Well, my friends, uh, Pete Gerritsen and uh, Namrata Goswami, our guest today, uh, did a great book on that and the sort of three-way rivalry going on between China, the U.S., and the private sector, and then all the other countries that are going uh, to space. But now everybody's focused on the moon, so we're going to spend some time talking about that. Then we're going to get into, uh, along the way the development of the, the Chinese space program. Um, I met Namrata uh, working through the U.S. Space Force, uh, through Pete Gerritsen, and um, she gave us some briefings um, that just kind of, uh, I was going to say it would have made my hair curl, but as you can see, that would be a non-starter, uh, those of you who can see this. Uh, but uh, it was amazing, the, the depth of her knowledge and her understanding. And, and she has a background for it. Um, she began in the Jawaharlal Nehru University in India, the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, she's been a research fellow at the Institute for Defense Studies and Analysis, and on and on. She's published all over the place. I consider her, and I think uh, the people I know who are in the know, consider her to be one of the world's top experts on um, the space programs in China and India as well. So... I guess the main thing to do right now is welcome you. Namaste, Namrata Goswami. How are you? Namaste, Rick. I'm good, and thank you for having me on the show, and Happy New Year. Yes, and thank you for correcting my pronunciation. Namaste. Oh, i got to get that right. As I mentioned at the beginning here, there's a lot happening out there. You guys covered it in uh, Scramble to the Sky, which um, I gather that's on Amazon, correct? Yes. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so go buy the book. Go buy the book. Did I say go buy the book? Um, and um, you know, you're, you're covering an area I think is is very very important right now. Obviously, um, humanity is about to, in various ways, break out into the solar system. Uh, to do that, we need resources. To do that, we need to uh, be in important or what you and I would refer to as strategic locations uh, and things like that. Um, what was it that uh, kind of caused you guys to write the book? 
Yeah, sure. So the motivation for writing the book came from an assessment that we did on the literature, uh, mostly academic and policy literature that existed at that time. And so what we noticed was that while there was a lot of writings at the academic and policy level on the technological aspects of uh, space in terms of the Cold War and what happened during the Cold War, and that space was seen very much as a national security aspect as well, the missing literature in that particular mix was this starting, or I would say an emergence of a policy conversation, policy documents, funding for space resources. So, and that was a very interesting shift to us because unlike the Cold War, where it was a lot about ideological rivalry that you can get to somewhere first in space, this particular discourse was about how can societies actually generate economic returns from their investment in space resources. And so what we thought would be useful is to bring together all that conversation as part of a research that would result in a book. And so we applied for the Minerva grant from the Department of Defense, and we got that. And based on that grant, we conducted fieldwork in China and India to ask their policymakers, academia, and those who look at space as to what was the discourse that was happening. And so, and then we also studied Luxembourg, uh, United Arab Emirates, the United States, and uh, drew out some uh, future developments in space. So the motivation was that, to bring together all that conversation into a book that uh, people would find useful and the information that should be laid out in a coherent manner. Oh, that's that's great. And I, I didn't realize about the grant part because um, I'm a shallow reader sometimes. But uh, the, the idea here, though, is that we are, um, it is a multidimensional space race that's going on right now. And we've never had that before. We had, you know, the U.S. and the USSR, you know, trying to prove who was the biggest, baddest kid on the block by getting to the moon first for a while. And then everything fell apart, uh, and uh, we went through the interregnum, the, the the quiet period, and then we had the rise of what my friends and I call uh, new space, um, the development of this sort of frontier orientation that sort of comes from the work of you know my mentor Jerry O'Neill in the High Frontier, and now we've got these other countries showing up. We've got uh, India, Japan, Russia, China. United States, I don't think I'm leaving anybody out. Um, I'm sure that we're going to see pretty soon, you know, we'll have like Guatemala and, the, you know, and the Canada and everybody's going, right? So oh, I left out the European space agency. There's a reason they're doing this, isn't there? Oh, yeah. So uh, what I, and I'm glad you brought that point in terms of how much, how many nations are actually starting to view space from a very critical concept, which is the concept of critical infrastructure. And so this is something I find different from the Cold War. So uh, what nations and what is so insightful to me in my work is that unlike the Cold War, where you had about five nations or four nations that looked at space, today you have 72 nations that are interested in space and space resource and space resource utilization, right? So as you said, uh, it's not just the U.S. or the U.S. private space sector that is interested in space and looking at space from an economic and space resource development perspective. But then you have countries in Asia, for example, like China, Japan, India, 
that are not just talking about space resources, but also putting the money, the long-term educational investment, as well as the long-term technological development that is required to meet these goals, right? So uh, I would say that I make that point because when I studied the policy documents and interviewed uh, those who study space and are interested in space in these countries, what I noticed was that their space investment tended to follow like a 20, 30-year cycle. And the argument they gave was that space like pharmaceutical requires a long time. So you should not be impatient. If you think of a technology, for example, like in-space resource utilization, there is a lot that needs to happen, but it cannot happen quickly. So we do need government funding in collaboration with private space sector, but we also need to develop the long-term regulation and the other things that come with it, which is education the workforce. So there was a lot of concentration on that. And so I can see that today when I look at the landscape of space, if I might use that word, you have not just the countries you mentioned, but also, for example, the African Union have established the African Space Agency in January of 2023, where they have a statute which looks at 2063 and how space is so vital. You have uh, the BRICS nation interested in space, you have the quadrilateral security dialogue that views space from a much more vital collaborative perspective that includes the India, United States, Australia, and Japan. So there is this really interesting emergence of space. And I'll end by saying that one of the most interesting things I observe is language, the language we use to talk about space, right? So when you think about the conversations Till about, say, 2000, 2010, it was a lot about space exploration, space as a scientific endeavor. Uh, while I know that you, Rick, and others talked about new space and pushed the discourse towards space utilization, for example, but that was not catching up in terms of policy discourse to the level it is today. So today, if you look at the language that nations like China, Japan, Luxembourg, India are using, they're using terms like space development, long-term investment in space utilization, economic benefits, space tourism. And so I find it really fascinating how space is seeping into the entire conversation spanning beyond national security and just space science missions. Yeah, it's very interesting, you know, again, having been involved in this for a couple of days myself, um, that it, it's almost like and I'm sure actually not just like, but that some of these folks, um, all these crazy groups out there, the, the National Space Society, the L5 Society, as it was before, uh, Space Studies Institute, which used to exist, uh, um, Mars Society, uh, all, all these different groups out there. It's like some of these folks were coming to these conferences for all of these years, right? They've been coming to these conferences where people are up there talking about crazy ass stuff like, Hey, we can mine the moon and asteroids and we're going to build space solar power plants and all of this. And while our own government here in the United States was not paying attention, it's like they were sitting in the back room with their pads or their iPads or whatever, taking notes going, Oh yeah, this is a good idea. Oh yeah. We should work on this. Let's get here. And then they would go back to their, their country and, uh, and, take it seriously and go for it. And it's almost like it's coming uh, full circle, which in America, we're used to that happening, right? Our, our own 
leadership often ignores um, um, the creativity of its, its citizens, whereas other people are like, no, that's really great, and they go for it. And then we end up having to catch up with an idea that was born here. Does that make sense to you? or? It does, because if you think about, think about, I was about to say, I was about to say, system. And this was a And so, and John Mankins, of course, a big uh, proponent of that idea. But what was so insightful, and actually, like what you said, the country that established the first national level space-based solar power program is China. So they established this program in 2019, and uh, just last year, they established a consortium. Uh, it's called the Space Solar Power Consortium of the Chinese Astronautical Society that is supported by the China Academy of Space Technology, which is one of their highest space uh, technology development body, and the China National Space Administration, which is equivalent to NASA, the policymaking body. So it is like you said, the concept was around but the country that actually not just talked about it, but put in the money. And now they're, they've announced that they're going to use their Tiangong space station, which is the Chinese uh, space station in low Earth orbit, to experiment on concepts like power beaming, which is important if, uh, if space-based solar power has to as achieve the scale that it wants to achieve, that is through microwave beaming of power. So yeah, it is very interesting. But I'll tell you that what I find fascinating is that if you look at the conversation around even a technology like space-based solar power, there were a few uh, people that were instrumental. One, of course, is Wang Shishi, who is the father of China's Long March series of rockets. He was about 90 years old in 2010, and he is the man and the soul behind pushing for a technology like space-based solar power. And he gave these presentations with the China Academy of Space Technology, where he pointed out that one of the most long-term strategic technologies, which is a reusable technology, is going to be space-based solar power. And China needs to invest in it. So you can see that there was the push. And then in India, which does not have an official space-based solar power program today, former President Abdul Kalam, uh, who's also India's nuclear physicist, pushed for the idea of space-based solar power. But most of these conversations, they drew inspiration from the United States. And so, yes, I think you have a very valid point when you say that technologies that start here, or even the concept of manufacturing and building large platforms in low Earth orbit, Jared O'Neill's High Frontier is read across the world. And now nations are adopting that particular uh, thinking. You yeah, know, I, again, I used to work for Jerry. I, I met Dr. Glacier. He's actually a nice fellow. And, uh, uh, Dr. Brown, who was the expert on beaming power. And, you know, it was an idea that, you know, I, I go back and forth on it. I'm still, I don't know, you know. Um, but now we're starting to see the costs come down for going to and from space. So it, it may be uh, something that uh, certainly is, is moving into its time. But, but again, I, I'm just convinced that um, they were paying attention um, they were not writing it off as those crazy people having these crazy ideas. And that's, I guess, how revolutions start in a way. Um, and so, oh, speaking of which, um, we're going to take a little break here. And um, you are listening to The Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson. My guest is Namrata Goswami. 
Um, and uh, we are a part of the iHeart Radio Network. You're listening on iRock Space Radio. We'll be right back. Hey there, spacers. Welcome back to the Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tumlinson. You're listening to iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeart Radio Network. Our guest today is Namrata Goswami. Probably without a doubt, uh, the West's number one expert on the Chinese and uh, Indian space programs, and, um, and an old friend, and I'm just thrilled to have her on board. Um, so, Nimrata, um, we were kind of talking about the fact that it seems like some of these folks uh, from some of these other nations were coming to the crazy, you know, space revolutionary events that were going on, uh, space conferences. Uh, that were being held uh, where people like myself and you mentioned John Mankins and all these other brilliant people would show up, um, myself not among the brilliant, just the loud. Um, and they were, we were all talking about, we can do these things. It was like they were sitting in the back room, or the back of the room taking notes and stuff. But it actually goes deeper than that when it comes to China, doesn't it? I mean, we, we in a sense, literally, an overused word, but in this case, almost literally, helped kick off the Chinese space program back in the 50s and 60s, didn't it? Yeah, actually, uh, it's such a poignant story to tell to your audience. So there was a Chinese student, Xiang uh, Keshang, who uh, came to the U.S. to study at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And uh, he was brilliant in terms of looking at concepts like rocket propulsion at that time. And so uh, once he finished his education, uh, he went to Caltech and was instrumental actually in the foundation of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, along with Theodor von Karman. And so, what, but what was the tragedy was that uh, he was suspected at the time that he started working uh, to not just have loyalties back to China, but also to be um, susceptible to communism and socialism. Uh, and that was the time the McCarthy era was kicking in. And so what uh, Shishang actually was successful in doing was that as part of the United States uh, effort to reach out to scientists in Germany, he was part of the team that uh, interviewed uh, uh, von Braun, uh, who became instrumental in the success of the U.S. in later years. Uh, but unfortunately for him, uh, despite the fact that he applied for a U.S. citizenship, because of these suspicions, he was forced to give up his application and then to he was deported to China. Now, Mao Zedong, who was at that time the general secretary of the Communist Party of China and president of the People's Republic of China, met him personally and uh, requested him to start the Chinese space and missile program. And then China has not looked uh, back since. So he is instrumental in where China is today. So I find that story both poignant and, in a sense, uh, blindness uh, on the part of the United States. Yeah, we have to be very careful about things like that. Um, we have a tendency to overreact and, uh, as they say, shoot ourselves in the foot. Um, so China then cruised along, and somewhere in the what, late 90s, the early 2000s, started accelerating dramatically, didn't they? Was there, what was the, what initiated that, do you think? What what took that off? What, what caused them to suddenly say, hey, we're going to build a space station, we're going to the moon, we're going to do all these things. Where did that come from? 
Yeah, so so basically the tipping point was I would say the tipping point started with 1978 revolution in China in terms of economic opening up. So Deng Xiaoping had vision. And so he realized that if China has to become a great power in the international system, it is really critical for China to not just economically open up, uh, diverting and moving away from Mao's model of a closed economy, but also that China had to invest in long-term capabilities, for instance, capability like space. And so in the Chinese conception, space was not just about, at that time, uh, military power, but also how space helps, for example, in weather forecasting, agriculture, for example, crop yield, uh, land reform, because China is at that time largely an agricultural country. But also space contributes to so many other factors like navigation. Uh, and, and so the thinking was that it's a very vital part of uh, technological development. Fast forward to the 1990s, Jiang Zemin, again, another very interesting and very uh, magnetic personality in terms of a Chinese president. He personally pushed for Chinese scientists to invest in long-term missions, uh, informed by, of course, uh, space scientists like Wang Shishi, that uh, China needs to invest in three critical programs. One is its ability to construct human-capable platforms in space, so human spaceflight, which was one focus. The second focus was to develop a capability to go to another celestial body, for example, the moon, as well as to think about missions to Mars. And I think they took a lot of inspiration from the United States as well, given the fact that the U.S. was the first nation to land on the moon and the Soviet Union, which was the first nation to uh, send a, a human-made object and human to space. So that were the reasons where China looked at space from a very vital long-term perspective. And that was the tipping point that is part of their societal and technological prowess. So I see all this happening and um, it's clear that like China is coming back in a sense all around the world, right? It's, it's you know, one of the, and I, I know I throw a mishmash of history together and kind of come up with my own conclusions perhaps, but uh, Zheng He had, had uh, back in the day, you know, in the uh, 1400s, 15th century, you know, had done his treasure fleet, um, basically saying, hey, China's great, come, come, you know, we're the center of the world, come pay attention to us, all of that. Um, and um, which is a, was an amazing thing. I mean, the ships that were bigger than the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria could go on their deck. You know, they were so huge, and there was this huge national pride. Uh, of course, he was on the wrong side. Uh, things flipped in China. Uh, the fleet was recalled. Uh, I, I think even the trees that were big enough to make those core elements of the ships were chopped down. Um, China just withdrew, almost kind of withdrew behind the wall. Now, the wall is a much older, different story, but metaphorically, they kind of went behind this wall and were inside. Um, and I think that it's not an accident that, you know, these missions to the moon, for example, have the, the same name you know, and, and all of this uh, uh, as well. You know, there's kind of a, it, it seems to me, right? Um, and it, it's, I think it's, to me, it's almost like a national pride type thing that they're going to come back. And just as they're doing, um, 
in, in the far um, Western Pacific uh, and uh, the South China Sea, as it's called, and things like that, they're kind of flexing their muscles. Like, we're here. We're, we're moving out a little bit. We're moving out. We're moving out. Um, and that as they move into space, that gives them a way of almost reclaiming history, in a sense. Um, now, this is way off the charts, but I remember reading the book uh, by a guy named Gavin Menzies, uh, who was the guy who theorized that China, Chinese fleets went around the world and um, had done all this. And he's got some very interesting evidence. I mean, it's, it's yeah, you know, it's, it's not a yes or a no type thing. Not crazy. Um, what I found interesting, and, and we probably should talk offline about it, was that it was in the early, uh, very early 2000s that he was hosted by the Chinese Communist Party to give his lectures about China having circumnavigated the world right at that moment that they started kicking the gear. And I, I don't think there's a one-to-one -one relationship, but I, I'm sure it kind of, you know, added a little bit to it saying, hey, you know, we did this. Let's go do this thing again. Does that make any sense at all, or am I just talking crazy? You're the expert. Tell me. So the connection to the uh, the oceans, the voyages historically that China actually engaged in, for example, Zhang He uh, during the Ming Dynasty, uh, the treasure ships that we were talking about, uh, they were a lot about trade, as you know, but not just trade. Uh, they were about showcasing China as the Middle Kingdom the center of the universe and everybody else being a tributary. They also not just went to Africa, but landed in the south of India. Uh, and so there are these historical memories, right? And so what is interesting uh, to continue your conversation is that when I was in Shanghai uh, interviewing and collecting data for my uh, research on China and space, so I asked one of the leading thinkers there uh, with the Shanghai Inst International Studies Institute that... Uh, do you think my assessment in terms of China learning lessons from history and reflecting that back in terms of how they are thinking about space, for example, as you said, national pride, but also what that can bring to their economic development? So he said, you know, instead of me answering the question, why don't you travel to the outskirts of Shanghai to the Chinese Maritime Museum? So you will get your answer there and what we learned from history. And so I did that. I traveled for about an hour, went to the museum. It's a beautiful museum by, the, by a water body. And the entrance to it is just beautiful. And so the moment I enter that, there is the replica of a treasure ship by Zhang He. And in that particular replica, they, there is a statement saying that we have learned lessons from our history, which means never ever turn your back to technology. Don't be short-sighted. Uh, do not kill ambition, right? Uh, do not kill strategic thinking. And so mm -hmm. uh, fast forward to today, one of the biggest influence for China's space program, especially this idea that China keeps repeating, which is about ensuring access to low Earth orbit and beyond, and to maintain and dominate that particular access comes from China's who's president, Hu Tao before the president before Xi Jinping. So President Hu basically pointed out that one of the dilemmas that China faces on Earth is the Malacca dilemma. So the fact that the United States Navy dominates the Malacca Straits, that means that in case there is a conflict, for example, say over Taiwan, the US 
Navy is in a position to cut off China's trading routes and vital supply chain for resources in that particular strait. So they called it the Malacca Dilemma. So the argument then they extended to space, saying that a similar situation cannot be repeated in space. So there is that historical learning not to turn your back on technology, uh, a, a desire to ensure that access and the word domination is used. So that basically is maintained. And so there is those, there are those uh, learning lessons from history. And, and China, as you know, has a long historical eye. And they keep saying that they learn from their 5,000 years of civilizational history, which is very difficult in their perspective. And so there is a resonance of their in their space program. And so today, uh, I'll end with that. If you look at their space program, uh, there is long-term focus, uh, which means long-term funding, as I said, workforce development and prioritization. There is the great desire to ensure and manage large platforms in space, very similar to the treasure ship kind of idea, extending the Tiangong Space Station, the decision they took last year to do it. And finally, to able to be able to have choke points, for example, in cislunar space. So one of uh, China's scientists, uh, he's from the China Academy of Space Technology, Wang Wei, presented a very fascinating vision last year to the China Astronautical Society. And now they have started a study on that, which is that they have identified certain gravitational positions in the entire solar system that includes low Earth orbit, uh, L2 of the Earth-Moon Lagrange point, uh, gravitational places in the Sun-Earth Lagrange point, so that they can build permanent pla uh, permanent platforms there to extend China's economic and scientific capability by the year 2100. So you can see that they have that long-term learning from history, long supply chain mechanisms, how do you support it, end-to-end -end space logistics. It's a vision today. But the fact that they're talking about it historically and, and from the future perspective kind of supports your the question and the statement that you made. Very, very good. All right, we're going to come right back. We're going to talk a little bit more about China and the U.S. and the moon. I want to hear a little bit about India, um, and then we can get into a little of your personal story. I want to hear you know, how you got to this position, what got you there. All right, spacers, we'll be right back. You are listening to IROC Space Radio, the Space Revolution, here on the, uh, well, the iHeartRadio Network. We'll be back. All right, Katna Murata having a sip of her coffee there. But, uh, hey, we are, uh, you are listening to the Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson, and uh, here with uh, Chinese and India space expert extraordinaire, Namrata Goswami. Um, Namrata, I, um, you and I both participate a little bit uh, uh, with the Space Force and some of those folks in uh, some of the workshops. And um, you had made a, a great point uh, in one of the uh, conversations or briefings that you gave where China has a tendency to sort of believe if they can touch a thing that nobody else is touching, that they own it in a sense. And I kind of riffed on that with this idea that um, now, you know, there's a whole thing about nobody planting flags and owning the moon, right? We know that, whatever. Uh, I may agree or disagree about who can own parts of it or whatever um, on the big homesteader thing. One way that 
we could see how ha- I could see this happening would be that. So let's say there's uh, Shackleton Crater, which is uh, one of the craters of the poles of the moon that believe we believe there may be ice along the bottom of it or parts of the bottom of it. Um, never been hit by sunlight, parts of it. If I recall correctly, it's about 20 kilometers across. Uh, now, here on the Earth, there is a uh, jumping sideways. Here on the Earth, there's this deal that says uh, that uh, I think you can have like 500 meters around an oil rig in the ocean, which is sort of a minimum, right? It's like you don't have to get spacey and crazy. This is what we do on the Earth is 500 meters around an oil rig, you stay out because that belongs roughly to the people on the oil rig. It's a non-interference zone. So if you do the math, you could have a situation where a country like China could drop 20 little transponders in a grid on the bottom of the Shackleton Crater, um, you know, um, and like one kilometer apart and have them be active, you know, have them doing stuff, transmitting data, you know, because they're, they're interacting with them. And basically they could say, this is our zone, stay up without ever planting the flag, you know, and, and control all of the resources, which would be millions of tons potentially of, of ice. Um, and, you know, given what we're seeing in, in what they call the South China Sea right now, where they're building artificial islands and things like that, it seems to me that that may not be specifically what they might do, but it's the kind of thing we might see. Do you think that we could see something like that on the moon? Well, that's a great question. Um, and so the assessment that I made was based on actually their China, the Communist Party of China's behavior. So I do make a distinction between uh, the Communist Party of China and China's people at large, of which course. is really important. And so, and so I think what people forget is that when you're talking about China, uh, we are really talking about a very authoritarian regime in power, which controls information as well as the way they behave very uh, insular in some sense because there is no free media and there is no independent judiciary. So because of that, I would argue that if you look at what the Communist Party of China, especially under President Xi Jinping, has done, is concerning. For example, if you look at their, as you mentioned, their South China Sea behavior. So under Hu Jintao, uh, China actually agreed to a draft code of conduct with the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, for example, a country like Indonesia or Philippines, that they would not build any kind of physical structure on these islands and that they would respect each other's disputed concept, right? But come Xi Jinping, all that was not respected. So since 2015, China has actually built artificial islands there, has actually increased their uh, claim on the South China Sea islands as well as the area. It includes thousands of kilometers of water as well as re- creating a new concept called 11 Dash Line, which is a very irresponsible concept because it includes some of the territorial areas around Philippines and other nations. So, given that, that particular behavior, you see a very similar behavior, for example, in the China India border areas with Bhutan where there is a lot of assertion of China over a very small nation in terms of territory. And then you see that some of the very leading space scientists, for example, uh, Li Peiyang, uh, making arguments that for China, the moon is like the South China Sea Islands and Mars is like the East, Chi- East, East uh, China Sea Island that d- disputes with Japan. And that if they do not lay their flag and claim it today, 
they will be uh, basically their descendants will not be happy with them. So if you make this kind of arguments, that is concerning to me, right? And so these are not based on just behavior. It's also based on some of the statements that leading thinkers that have big influence on President Xi is talking about. Now, to answer your question about why this should be even more concerning is that uh, just last year, uh, China pointed out that they're going to uh, basically collaborate with Russia and build a permanent station on the South Pole of the Moon. And the fact that because it's a permanent structure and at an area where there are resources, the the point you made that if they, for example, say that you cannot land anywhere close to about 100 kilometers from here, which means that another nation, for example, India or say the US or a private sector company might need permission from China and Russia, right? Now, what China has done is that they have now established an international lunar regulatory body. So they're going to regulate and actually offer the legal mechanism for how they are going to basically determine that particular structure. And so looking at their behavior on Earth uh, across different cases, uh, I think the world should be concerned as to what the Communist Party of China might uh, create, for example, on the moon. So these are the reasons why I say that um, we should think about it very carefully. And I'll end by saying that if someone's interested, there is a film that people should watch, which is called Mao's Last Dancer. It's a beautiful movie about those contradictions, the the tension and the uh, desire of this particular amazing ballet dancer. And it's a true story. He lives in Australia now. And what he faced under the Communist Party of China not allowing him in terms of freedom of movement and the ability to do what he wants to do. So, so we have to keep all that in mind when we think about China and the moon. Yeah, and I think it's very important to separate the people from the government where they have no say. Um, <clears throat> what's interesting is the scenario I gave, you used 100 kilometers. I was only using 500 meters. I mean, you're, you're going yeah. big here. But what's interesting is here on the Earth, and we'll end, up, we'll end this section here with this, but here on the Earth, the first thing that would happen would be an airplane or a ship from one of the free nations would immediately fly through it to challenge it and say, no, you don't. No, you don't. You can't do that. That's what we do. We do it in the South China Sea all the time. Um, we don't have anybody in space to do that. And, um, you know, this is this is my pro um, space force and, you know, whatever. Uh, free nations, you've got to get out there got to get out there so uh, we can guarantee the expansion of, of freedom um, through the universe. And again, I want to go back one more time just to make sure it's very clear. We separate the Chinese people from the Communist Party. Uh, I think that's a vital point. And, and so the one thing on Earth that has also happened is that China announced air defense identification zone over the East China Sea. And so what that did is that commercial space planes, uh, space airplanes, uh, sorry, not space planes, airplanes have to now report their entire uh, route to China because in case they don't do that, China can take them down because that's Chinese territory. And so a similar air defense identification zone is now being thought through, for example, over Taiwan and the South China Sea, right? So... Um, what happens is that while the U.S. Navy is challenging and actually uh, moving its uh, battleship or any kind of military ship into those waters, China has continuously either hassled or countered back or uh, threatened uh, their uh, 
neighboring countries in case they do such activity. So uh, it's a very interesting insight we get from their behavior on Earth as well. So we could see a scenario building on your scenario on the moon where we have a Chinese facility with a 100-kilometer zone around it that you can't fly over without Chinese permission. We could see that. I mean, that's... Yeah, it, it is very possible because if you look at the South China Sea, it's thousands of kilometers. So that's where I was taking the metaphor because you know what happens? It's fascinating. So if you look at the Communist Party of China's assessments, uh, looking at space and the ocean, they're looking at where the resources are. So the South China Sea is not just a historical lost island metaphor. There are billions of dollars worth of oil resources underneath it. And China knows that, and China one day would require that. And so that's why the claims became even more assertive after a UN study in the 1970s that told us that there were enormous resources under the South China Sea Little Rocks and the, that ocean area. And so that's where the, uh, the, the assertion of Chinese territory became very strong. And now China is starting to argue that the moon has resources, especially the South Pole, and that now they're also uh, going to do an asteroid exploration mission called Zhanghe after their treasure ships. So um, given that strategic thinking, uh, we have to be aware of it and be uh, not, not, there is a tendency to think that because space is so inspirational, which also, when I listen to music, when I think about space, folklore, including my conversations in China, the common people view space from a very inspirational perspective. People wanted to talk to me in different towns because I worked on space, right? And the fact that I come from Northeast India, which is very close to Tibet, there were cultural similarities. But uh, when it comes to geopolitical conceptualization, uh, it tends to be much more uh, aggressive and nationalistic. And so we need to keep that in mind. Yeah, what, uh, just to wrap the topic up, I, I had this mischievous idea of that uh, if the people of the world could get together, what we could do is make force the, the Chinese, the Russians, the Americans, and, and everybody else, their national governments would all have to be on one base, right? They would all have to be like in one crater together, like we did with the space station, which worked. And then we'd let the private sector and, and citizens go do whatever they want on the moon. We don't care, right? But all the governments, you guys cause all the trouble, right? You're the ones who are fighting. You're the ones who are blowing stuff up. You're the guys who are always button heads. Private sector, everybody just wants to work together and, and, and create an economy and, and help everybody out. Uh, let's shove them all in one crater so you're stuck with each other. Boom. And then we would handle you know, We would handle it. Um, so real quick, uh, not real quick, but you you mentioned your background in India. Um, what What is your feeling about India's response or India's plans? What, what do you see India doing right now? So India actually has made some very game-changing decisions last year. This never happened before. India's space program, since it was established in 1969, was a very, I would argue, a very traditional space program where it looked at building launchers, which were inexpensive but not reusable, and to be able to launch its own satellites and build its own communication navigation system. And this was the story till about, I would say, 2017, 2018. I think one of the inspiration was, of course, the U.S. private space sector and reusability that SpaceX and Blue Origin were working on and successfully demonstrated. So Indian citizens, uh, the nation was inspired by that. 
But what changed last year, and which is absolutely vital, is that India started moving its space program from traditional goals to looking at space from a very long-term perspective. So till last year, India was very hesitant to talk about space from a space resource perspective, the regulation around it, habitation on the moon, building large-scale structures, I mean, when I was there doing my interviews in 2017 and then again uh, in 2022, there was a hesitation and a reticence to even talk about their space programs. I think everything changed. Uh, the U.S. Uh, successes are a part of that particular strategic change. Critique, for example, I've written critiques at the time that India does not have a long-term vision. A democratic nation is so not transparent. And so I would argue that last year, India completely changed its space program. Today, India has a 2047 space vision, which is the 100th year establishment of India as a democratic nation in 1947 from British India. And in that 2047 vision, India is looking to build its own space station by 2028, uh, build uh, its own communication support structures on the moon by 2030, and what was really interesting to me was that they are now talking officially, this is an official vision about habitation on the moon by 2040, human settlement on the moon, which is a complete departure. And then I'll finally say that if you look at India's military space as well as commercial space, that is what has changed the game. So last year, India issued its first official space policy. China always does it with its white papers that talks about its space program and vision. India, for the first time last year, pointed out that India is now going to completely commercialize its space industry. So the Indian Space Research Organization will not manufacture. It is the private space sector that will do it. Uh, they established new institutions, for example, the New Space India Limited for uh, commercializing space, and then the Indian Space Authorization Agency called InSpace, that is a single window licensing body because they learned lessons from the U.S. and the cumbersome processes at times. And then India, of course, is a department of space. So everything comes under that particular department under the prime minister's office. And so and the final thing I would say is that China was the first country in the world to establish a separate space force called the People's Liberation Army Strategic Support Force in December 2015. The U.S. followed in 2019. And India also followed in 2019 by establishing its own defense space agency. But this last year, the Indian Air Force has submitted a proposal in which it wants to rename itself the Indian Air and Space Forces. So which tells you that India is looking at space from that holistic perspective. I would end by saying that all this is happening because India is getting more confident for two reasons. One, uh, last year, India successfully landed, for example, on the on, on the moon, the Chandrayaan-3 mission. And what caught the imagination of the world, I got so many interview calls and media interviews wanting to know, how is it possible that a nation can launch, use propulsion, enter lunar orbit, and land with just $75 million? How is it possible? When even a space launch system costs about $4 billion, right? So nations around the world, I got, I got calls from uh, Latin America, Africa, Europe, wanting to know how can that be replicated, a program that is so cost effective, right? And so I think because of that success, now India is going to land next year, or this year again, end of this year, 
uh, trying to do lunar sample return. And I'll finally end that what is so fascinating about India is that it's actually taken a very interesting strategic decision to collaborate with the United States. So uh, India signed the Artemis Accords. It's an Artemis Accord signatory in June. Uh, India has signed a human spaceflight program with NASA to go back to the International Space Station, to go to the International Space Station this year, the first time for India. And then finally, India has taken the decision this year in 2024, just yesterday, that India is now going to use SpaceX as a launch platform as well, which means it's globalizing SpaceX uh, business, right? And so these are the most fascinating developments in India's space policy. What a game-changing aspect. It has a lot to do with China and what China's done, but it's also this desire, and I'll end there. So uh, historically, India has been very shy of business in space. It's a lot about how space can develop India's agriculture, national development, because of its colonial history. Uh, it was very wary of uh, becoming or seen as a nation that is assertive in space. Today, if you listen to the Indian science and technology minister, uh, India hosted the G20 summit last year. And in that summit, Jitender Singh pointed out that India is hoping to contribute about $40 billion to the space economy by 2040. Today, it's about $8 billion. And India's human spaceflight program is not about prestige. It's about space tourism. They want to use India's low-cost, reusable, by the way, India tested a reusable demonstrator this year. China has also done it. And so I think uh, India is talking about space tourism, space resource, space habitation, and building the regulatory regulation to support it. So India's space policy pointed out that if an Indian citizen can go to an asteroid and uh, basically mine the resource there, they can keep it. So they have the regulatory framework, very similar to the U.S. and Luxembourg and Japan, to support Indian citizens doing it. So those are the most interesting developments, I would say, uh, the world has to watch uh, because India is starting to uh, change its space program and vision very clearly. Yeah, I look, <laughs> $75 million to land on the moon, right? I mean, I think we, we here in the U.S., um, I think we have uh, baseball players who are getting $75 million a year, you know, um, that, to, to play baseball. Um, um, so... That's amazing. And, uh, you know, uh, India, I've always been a great admirer of India. The, the, the creativity, uh, the energy, the drive, the professionalism um, that I run into whenever I deal with uh, uh, Indian business people is, is very, very high, very, very strong. And I think that um, um, I think this is going to accelerate in terms of India. I think we're going to see more and more. This has all happened in the last like three or four years. I mean, it's. It's going to be one of these things, right? That, that just catches on, um, and so I'm very excited about the contribution that India is going to be making. So we're going to wrap up this segment. We're going to come home, and we're we're going to come back and bring it home here in the last section. Um, we're talking to Namrata Goswami. You are listening to iRock Space Radio. My name is Rick Tomlins. You can follow me at Rocket Rick at Rocket Rick, and um, yeah, we'll be right. Hey there, Spacers. What a fascinating show. I'm, I'm having a good time on this one, I'll tell you. Um, so, Namadika Swami, expert, a Swami in terms of India and China's space programs, just international space activities overall. 
So, Namada, you've clearly navigated yourself into this field and, and taken a high-level position in, in, in terms of respect that people have for you. Um, everybody I know, from Space Force to commercial, very greatly respects you, the level of your work, uh, and what you do. How challenging was it for you as female, as somebody coming in from India? Um, how, how challenging has it been for you to, to get yourself into this position? I mean, tell us a little bit of your story, because you know, some young women out there, there are women from India out there listening, perhaps. Um, how, how has it been for you? And what would you say to them? If I can say and start with where I grew up. So I grew up in a very small mountain town in Northeast India. And so when I was younger, um, the one thing that really inspired me was, first of all, my education, uh, teachers, my, my parents, my family, uh, and also the fact that we had this very clear access to a beautiful night sky. So that really inspired me in terms of where I wanted to be, a young girl uh, in a remote area with limited uh, educational resources, but yet an education that actually grounded me. So it sounds contradictory, but that's how I was when I was younger. And so I think uh, a few challenges that I faced was, of course, first of all, uh, to get an education because the usual traditional route is to uh, grow up, finish a little bit of your education and then get married and, you know, follow a very different path, which is also a very respectable path. But in my, uh, I wanted to uh, do something uh, in terms of developing myself into someone that has expertise in international relations. And that kind of inspiration, of course, came from my father. Uh, my dad, uh, he had this library, a very small library of books that I read. And I always was fascinated by the world. And so, and because of that, I decided to get a PhD, uh, which was itself a challenge because I had to go through a level of uh, entrance and interviews and coming from a very remote area, cross into a big city like Delhi and navigate that. And uh, being a woman, that was challenging for me coming from a smaller town uh, and then getting into the workspace. So one thing I would tell you that my life lesson, and I gave a TEDx talk on this in terms of what is it about space and how do women navigate it? Because it is a very male-dominated enterprise. I think the one thing I recognize is that any person, be it a man or a woman, has to, if you choose a particular passion or a field, it is extremely important to be able to be a master at it, if I may use the word. Be, work hard. You have to work really hard. You have to know what your subject, but you also have to have that passion and dedication. Uh, it's called Swadharma in Sanskrit. It's like a continuous development of self. It's a challenge at times, but that's what I think I would tell someone listening. And for women in particular, I would say that do not be afraid to speak up. I think this is sometimes uh, a thing I notice, including in myself, that when uh, when I was younger, when I was in panel, I tended to not speak up because I felt like they... People would already say what I wanted to say, but I never realized that I might have a different perspective, but I needed to speak up because sometimes they would not call out my name, you know, but despite that, I put out my hand and spoke up. I did not see the system as an enemy. What I thought in my head was that if I have to survive in this particular system, I have to navigate and find the opportunity, but also learn to be assertive, not aggressive, 
but assertive is what I would end with. That's perfect. Yes, I, I totally get it. Yeah, and, and it's interesting too, because you know, I run I run some conferences and events and, and it is exactly the way you're saying it. You know, it's you have to speak up. You have yeah. to say something. The universe isn't gonna give it to you as a gift, uh, unfortunately. And and that's true for anybody, uh, male, female, whatever your gender, whatever your orientation is, you just have to push yourself in there. And I like the idea of uh, becoming a master in a thing, or as my friend or our friend Loretta Whitesides would say, you have to become a Jedi. Yeah. You have to become a Jedi um, and and really in control of it, understand it, and yet be open, open to new learning. This is the part of the show where I, I like to ask a couple of silly questions for you, um, but they're kind of fun. And people have been listening to this very serious stuff. And uh, um, the first one is, um, you know, you're you're in a spacecraft cruising over the moon. You hopefully haven't transgressed over the Chinese space space over their facility. You're just cruising. Um, and you can feel the motion. You can see the craters passing below you. It's it's amazing. The, the view is amazing. What would you be listening to? I would be listening to Flying in the Blue Dream by Joe Satriani. Very cool. Major guitar player. Mm-hmm. I like yeah, it. One of, my, one of my favorite. I like his dedication to his craft. Yes, he yes. Is, he is because of mastery of his craft. So that is that is true. That is true. He is one of the top in the world. You were talking about the books, the library. Um, first, nonfiction. Was there a nonfiction book that inspired you, or that you would recommend? It doesn't have to be the one that inspired you, but one that you would recommend someone read. Uh, who's interested? Yeah. So the book that uh, inspired me in terms of the complexity of life is Sunil Kilnani's The Idea of India. I say that because it could be the story of any nation and even mm. our enterprise space, because it's written in a way that talked about who. So when you talk about space, there are different ideas. Everybody has their own idea. It's a complex story. How do you merge those ideas together into a plural kind of universe, right? And so in Kilani's book, The Idea of India is a beautiful book because, and growing up in the remote areas where there was a little bit of anxiety about the idea of India. And so it told me that there is the possibility of a state or a community where different narratives can come together. Uh, And yet what was the best part of the book was that even if you have different ideas and different thought about, say, a space community, or for example, how do you handle space debris? That is also okay, you know? And so mm-hmm. I, that's a great book in terms of nonfiction. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, in terms of uh, science fiction. So actually, uh, well, I'm glad you asked me that question. So uh, in terms of my favorite science fiction book that I recently read, I would say that I really enjoyed Daniel Suarez's Delta V and Critical Mass. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe I'm biased there because it reflects my actual writing in some sense because it talks about asteroid mining and resources. And then in terms of tackling life's challenge, uh, one of the books that I really enjoyed reading was Ender's Game. So it's a, it's a really wonderful book. So I would, I would say those three books. And then if you look at outside the Western world, one of the books that is dystopian but really interesting in terms of organization, alien invasion, how would humanity tackle with it is Li Shishing's The Dark Forest, not The Three-Body Problem. People talk a lot about The Three-Body Problem, which is his first book, but I would recommend The Dark Forest. The Dark Forest. 
Okay, that one's going on my list. Uh, I've had the pleasure of actually meeting and talking to both of the other authors, but uh, The Dark Forest, I'm writing that one down right now. Um, very, very cool. And what about a film or a television series? So, uh, so I have this very interesting personality where, as you know, I study uh, geopolitics and international relations, uh, but I also have a, a side of me that looks at space from a space uh, inspiration, development, and yet identity issue, right? So there are two series that comes together for me that forms my personality and I react to both in a very interesting way. One is The Expanse. I really enjoy The Expanse because of the issues of identity, issues of secession, issues of the Belters and the Martian and the Earthers and how they actually view each other. What happens when you break away or you feel like you're not being uh, listened to, for example, the Belters and the OPA vis-a-vis uh, -vis Earth? And the other series that is geopolitically very interesting to me but creates an alternate universe is uh, For All Mankind. So those are my two favorite series as of now. I also am a Star Trek and a Star Wars fan, but these two, I would say, are what I like. We can't overlook the fact that in The Expanse, the lady in charge of the Earth is an Indian. <laughs> oh, Sarala, yes, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Just something there, the, the Empire. There we go. Um, well, look, um, as a very last thought to any child or anybody out there, Maybe a, a child in their mind, somebody who's just left a job. But they're um, interested in this. What would you say? So I would say that find your passion. Find a passion that really moves you. So, you know, it's interesting. You love a job, but you are passionate about an idea. There's a difference, right? And so for my life, my work is not just my love, but it's my passion. So I would tell anyone listening, especially girl, I have, I've spoken to uh, young women across the world. I am so humbled by the way they reach out to me and talk to me. I would say that find your passion, build expertise, choose your field. Um, and if possible, it's not always possible, make it your passion. Uh, and that actually, everything falls in place then. You know, you have this different dedication and different effort and I'll finally say that uh, also keep in mind that when you choose a particular field or career, uh, you also have to sustain a life. So, so bring all that together, passion, uh, livelihood, love. And if you find your passion in all that, it's wonderful. So that's my advice to anyone listening. I've got nothing to follow about that. All right, Spacers, thank you for listening. Thank you for uh Joining us, you've been listening to The Space Revolution, and we are out the air. You've been listening to The Space Revolution Podcast with Rick Tumlinson, a production of iRock Space Radio. Go to iRockSpaceRadio.com for more.